It didn't take much more than a bottle and two chairs to make a speakeasy. This is what Daniel Okrent said in his book, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Today, join us for some stories. Get your own bottle, glass, mug, and relax. This is Speak Easily, and I'm your host, Krista Stoffer. today. We're yeah, this is great. Thank my you. pleasure. So happy yeah. to be here. It's kind of nice to just also just kind of pop on and chat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I think we have a lot to talk about. I think we have a lot in common besides just Laura Lee. So. Yeah, which is which is so fun because when you send all of um, your information, I can't, I can't count the number of kids that I've had at Bexley. Mm-hmm over the years. So I had no idea. And it's like mutual friend, mutual friend, mutual friend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we connect on very many levels, I'm sure. So, so are you, you're here in town now, right? Yes, I am. I was working on uh, wrapping up the last choreography for make an omelet in something rotten. So I'm sitting here singing in my head, me. Oh gosh. Omelet, make an <laughs> and, uh, so, so we want to change that little earwig. That would be great. <laughs> so. um, uh, uh, let me, uh, uh, Rick Astley, should we go there? <laughs> No, we don't have to go that far. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know how far deep down you wanted to go because I Damn can it, do that. Damn it, that's too far. No, <laughs> no. Okay, yeah. It's, uh, oh my goodness. Well, Tracy, we're really glad you're here today, and this is—it's fun for me when when a friend is like, "You have to have this person on," because it's our our format for a podcast is just like we just like chatting with people. Um, to be completely honest with you, we don't do much planning or <laughs> it's it's always interesting to me how they start off and I will warn you just as a a random thing here so Ben got a Roomba oh. uh, <laughs> when did you get it uh, a few days ago okay nice so, and you said the first thing they made you do is name it yes yeah do you have Tracy do you have a Roomba we had a Roomba when we moved to Alabama we bought this gigantic house and we had two cats and I said to my husband maybe it's time for a Roomba we we lost it a couple of times because it you know battery would die when it was someplace else and uh, but yeah it's but nobody ever told us we had to name it darn that would that was yeah it was like the first option it gave me is like I turn the thing on you start connecting it through the through the app and it's like hey what would you like to name your Roomba and I I had to stop for a second just like I, I wasn't prepared for this particular level of commitment wow what, what, <laughs> so, what did you name your room by? you're I gonna know. like this tracy you're this gonna... is pots so yes now just daughters around my my studio <laughs> and, and sweeps up and wow. and tidies I, I, she, in my head she's got like one of those python-esque british voices like that <laughs> oh lovely darling you're so pardon me <laughs> And sweep up a bit. So, so she came in like right before. I, I, I'm already referring to her as she. Yeah, she, yeah. She came in right before we started. I mean, and she is. She's. She's thorough. She's thorough. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like move your feet, love. I got get underneath. <laughs> okay. and she, oh my gosh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. So, so if she's. Now we've got um, you on there. Oh hey. Yeah, there you go. Hi. There we go. <laughs> so if she is knocking on the door, there may be some. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I may also get another worrying in the background. Yeah. That's uh... (laughs) she's she's lost somewhere in my studio, too. She got lost behind the curtain back there a while back. So, so can you summon her with voice command? Is what I need to know. That's yeah. Um, I can, I haven't set it up yet, but I can make her start doing her job with voice command. So I could be like, you know, hey, uh, you know, hey, Mrs. Potts, go sweep the studio. (laughs) Or, and apparently I can divide it into sectors, too. So she could just do the carpeted area or she she can go back onto the concrete too if I wanted oh, to. But the concrete's where she's going to run into real trouble. Yeah. She went under my desk and I it came out. I'll show you a picture. It looked like she went through hell. It was amazing. The war, the war-torn criminal. But yeah. It was worse than she thought under there, huh? It's so well. We're sitting in here just chatting, and Mrs. Potts is doing her thing, right? And so mm-hmm. at one point, Ben is like looking down. And he goes, "Oh, oh, sorry, Mrs. Potts." And I and I asked him like. Oh, does she recognize voices? That's that's cool. He's like, no. <laughs> yeah, no. She she went under my desk and she came out looking like can she's covered. In, oh my gosh! Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, she's covered in. See if you can see this. Can you see that? Oh yeah, <laughs> a little bit of schmutz there. Yeah. Yeah, oh. she's. Yeah. She's a worker. 
Yeah, she's a worker. This is so. a this is a whole new f- thing for me. I just don't. Yeah. I, 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 I welcome our robot overlords. So, you know. Well, it starts with the Roombas, you know. It starts what? with the Roombas. <laughs> the Roombas the gateway. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I could take Mrs. Potts in a fight. So, yeah, but you know, came down to it. You guys already have a really close relationship beginning, though. Yeah. yeah. Me, Mrs., Mrs. Potts and I, and of course, <laughs> uh, my, my coffee master, Keurig, over here oh, yeah. is, uh, you know, Keurig is the coffee guy yeah so there's where we are in the yeah. studio too. So, welcome to our podcast thanks covid yeah. <laughs> Fair. oh my goodness so you you are busy you keep yourself I busy. Am busy when i so, wrote it down i thought oh golly i'm busy yeah it's uh that's a, no that's a good thing i i'm the same way like like what else can i do right now oh. <laughs> Not quite enough. Busy is happy. And then, then you get to the point where you, you cross over the line from busy is happy to busy is making my eyelid twitch. And then, you know, you just kind of hit, uh, hit that middle. So, but if you didn't have yeah. it, I mean, where were you? I have to go back. Oh. Where were you this, this area of time last year, like when COVID was hitting? Were you in Texas uh, or were you here? I was actually on vacation uh, in uh, the British Virgin Islands, Yosemite. Oh. We had rented a house with two other families and we, our daughter had come down to stay with us, you know, from grad school and everything. And so we were all there and we're watching the news and watching the country slowly shut down. And we're like, dang, we got to get back. And so we left all the food we had laid in for the people that were the housekeeping staff and the, the, you know, the workers that ran the boats and stuff because no new people were coming in to take their reservations. All the restaurants were closing down. Uh, They were, you know, we, we, you know, kind of last planed in it to Miami and yeah. then flew back to Texas. And um, that oh was my so gosh, were you like, how many days were you there? Had you been there long enough to at least enjoy a little bit of it? Yeah, we did. We enjoyed it, but there was always that underlying people kept watching the news, you know, with all wow. of the people in the household and we kept you know, paying attention to it and wondering what was going to happen. And we were in different camps about whether we should go home or whether we should stay and, you know, and finally, uh. The, the family with the 10 year old decided the, the matter and, you know, cause it was like, well, what if we get stuck out here? It's always the family yeah. with the 10 year old. Right. You. It's always the family with the 10 year old that ruins it for everybody. So I have a, I have a 10 year old, so I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He re- no, he doesn't. Never. So you were there. And then, I mean, was it just like the sense of fear and, and foreboding, like coming home to well, yeah, it was, Insanity. I mean, it was before anybody knew what they were doing. I mean, yeah. like I said, my friend who was very um, fastidious and very worried about her 10 year old, she was the one with all the wet wipes and all the hand sanitizer before it was fashionable. And so, you know, we get to Miami and we put my daughter on a plane to Pittsburgh and that was tough, you know, sending my, wow. my, my adult daughter back into the unknown. And then we all flew to Dallas, but that in Miami, you know, our friend is wiping down all the seats before we can sit on them. And, you know, and she, she probably would have wiped down everything if they let her, and, you know, here's for your tray when you get in the seat on the plane. And so we, we wet wiped our way back to Dallas, basically, yeah. and just kind of hunkered down. And that was a good time to finish up a lot of things. You know, you clean out the closets, you watch all those shows you meant to watch. And, and that was when, <laughs> that was when I started making that costume. <laughs> I saw that while well, I was watching your YouTube videos and it was just like when you said it was during COVID time because when I watched them I didn't look at the date to wonder yeah did this all happen like when everybody was doing their sourdough starter right so was it was it right at the beginning that you did that or was that um, kind of a little bit into it it had been in the works because when I had written this historic novel um my my main character gets married in the book and even though she was of modest means and she was uh, a Baptist, so they dressed in kind of almost like Quakers, if you think of yeah. a Quaker, um, yeah. in the 1700s. This is set around the American Revolution. And even though I knew that her life was probably just plain dresses most of the time, I really wanted her to get married in something pretty. Yeah. That was, you know, because I'm all about the costumes and the clothes because I'm a theater person. And and so I looked at different historical things and I conceived a way in the story for her to end up with a gown that was way nicer and way more expensive than anything she should have had. And of course, that would be the gown she would get married in. And you were, you're like the bestower of the beautiful gown. I was the bestower <laughs> of the beautiful gown. I have no idea what my six times great grandmother truly got married in. I'm sure it was Aww. her best dress, whatever it was, but it was 
this was fun to look at yeah. patterns from the 1700s, you know, the right period, 1760s, 1770s. Um, that costume is all the way down to the underwear. I made the shift and then the stays oh and, and all the stuff and, and even accessorized her. So it was really fun. And I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And once I got the closets cleaned out and I found all the fabric I'd bought, I was like, well, <laughs> what better time than now? So yeah. I did it all by hand without the sewing machine. Did you really? I did. Everything was by hand. Six, 18th century technique. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Cause this is, this is where you and I differ Tracy in the theater world is that if I could have gotten kicked out of costume class in college mm -hmm. based on skill level, I would have been. Ah, um, see, I would run all over costume class. So <laughs> what I love about that is like, you have this, you've made this thing and you know, all yeah. of the facets and why everything is made the way that it is and, and why the materials that are used are used and, 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 and how it's all put together. And that lends so much more, I don't know, realism to mm -hmm. it. It's it's much mm -hmm. more than just a dress or an artifact. I mean, it's an artifact now. It's a thing. Yeah. It's a really, it's really impressive. How long did it take you to do the, the full wedding dress? Um, well, let's see. Probably maybe six weeks. And it wasn't yeah. full time. You know, it was the kind of thing you can sit there and sew while you're watching television or while you're doing other things, talking on the phone, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was good that I'd laid in most of the supplies ahead of time because it wasn't a sure thing whether the Joanne Fabrics was gonna be open or not. Oh, and so I was ordering a lot of things online, um, like the, the ribbons to tie the stays and things like that. I had to experiment with a couple different widths to get that right. But that was a lot of buttonholes, you know, all the lacings, I did the buttonholes and sewed those around those by hand oh, too. Wow. So, wow. Have you yeah. made clothing before? I mean, oh, yeah. obviously you know what you're doing with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my mother and my grandmother were both very skilled and I learned a lot from them. And so it's been a thing that I've always enjoyed doing. And mm -hmm. my husband and I used to volunteer at the Ohio History Connection in Yeah. The yes. And so the, um the muffins, the, right? The muffins. Yes. The, the muffins. muffins. <laughs> yes. Where so, did the, where did the muffins why are they the muffins? Where did that oh, come from? Let me tell you. Okay. okay so, <laughs> um, in, in the in the 19th century vernacular, your your first string was your crack nine. Those were the best, the best nine. Okay. okay. And then, then you had your second nine and the, a muff is an error. So oh. your muffin nine is your guys that aren't all that good, but they like your third string guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so they, it's, yeah, it's just in, in homage to the people that love the game. Okay. So and, it's, it's, they may not be the best, but they are, <laughs> we, they love we it. Were, They're having fun. Yeah, we set out to interpret the game, they say, as it was meant to be played. You know, no yeah. sliding, no spitting, no swearing. Um, family entertainment. It was meant to be a way for gentlemen who maybe were working in factories at that point to get out and run around and get some fresh air, fraternize, that kind of thing. So there was no such thing as um, balls and strikes being called at that point. The oh. pitcher's job was to get the ball where the batter could hit it, put it in place so everybody could run around and, and do their thing. And so the catcher stood like six to eight feet behind the plate and the umpire would just start to say after a while, you know, sir, you need to start putting them where the batter wants them. And, and <laughs> Pardon so, me, sir. One moment, please. Me, sir. Yes. And so it was all very, um, it was just so fun, the colloquialisms yeah. of the whole thing. And, and so the wives and the children would often dress if we were going to a festival or a, a civil war reenactment as part of the entertainment, we would dress too. So Robin Schurich up at the Ohio History Connection was our clothing guru. And I Ooh. learned an awful lot from her. And I have eight, I have a 1860s costumes as well. <gasps> oh, that's so much fun. Yeah, hoop skirts that's are so fun. Much, did you, as a kid, did you sew? Did you put together clothing mm -hmm. when you were growing up? Okay. Oh, sure, yeah. Had all my okay. Girl Scout sewing badges, you know. It's, did uh, you really? Well, again, I have to laugh because I, I know why I'm so bad at it because my grandmother is, was phenomenal and she would do the, oh, uh, what's butter something? What's the, the kits, not the kits, but the, like a package. Like butterick, the patterns. Yes. Yes. I always think butter. I can't remember what else. See, clearly I know what I'm talking about here. Um, but grandma would make us these outfits and my sister and I would wear matching dresses and she would make them for special occasions. It skipped my mom. Uh, mom's real bad, like yeah. real bad. She made our Halloween costumes one year and they didn't make it down the street. They were falling oh. apart. Yeah, so it, yeah, that's tough. Now, when I was a child, I took at a dance studio, took dancing lessons and, um, the teacher had also taught my mother. 
And oh. so my mom used to, you know, stay after school with a quarter tied in her handkerchief to go take her dancing lesson, you know, Aww. that kind of thing. And in the fifties. And so when she took me back to the same teacher, um, the teacher was like, well, we don't buy the costumes out of the catalog. We look at the catalog to get ideas. And then we have a costume mother, like you'd have a homeroom mother. Yeah. And so my mom was the costume mother. And so she would uh -huh. consult with the teacher and the teacher would say, I want it to look like this and this colors and go get some clothes pattern sa samples and make one and put it on your kid. Okay. And so she would trot me out and I would stand there and Dorothy would look it over and she would say, it's not exactly what I had in mind every time so every they time. would go back and forth through drafts of the costume until it was what dorothy wanted and then my mom would make patterns to fit every other kid in the class oh my gosh and if and the other mom didn't sew my mom could sew for them for a fee but Jeez. we always had that one mom who was like stapling the trim on her kids costume mm -hmm. as, they, as we were headed out on stage you know so there's all levels of of yeah. you know that would be my family yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's real bad, real bad, but no, it, I always, I, I envy the people that are able to do it without having to think about it, I guess, where it just, mm -hmm. that skill comes, it is a skill. It's, I know it's a oh, learned absolutely. skill, but I think it's also something that's born and bred within a person too. Well, it's kind of like the way you, you look at the world and how you see things fit together. Mm -hmm. You know, like my dad's really handy about fixing cars and machines and things. And he just inherently seems to know what works and what doesn't. And yeah. that maybe escapes me, but I feel like that about the sewing. Now, one reason you get proficient is if you do the same thing over and over. And I've got to tell one story on my husband. The muffins were, um, they were forming a second team because they had so many people that were interested. And so my husband went to the organizational meeting. And at some point, they the guys are saying, well, we've got fabric and we've got patterns, but we need someone to make the shirts. And my husband says, my wife sews like the wind. And he came home with a box full of fabric and a bunch of oh patterns. My gosh. You need three in extra large, four in medium, four, you know, eight in large. And so I assembly lined them. Now, this was when I had a three-year-old. Uh. And so I couldn't really do it in the day when she was awake. And I had, I'd wait till after I got home from teaching class at, you know, at Valley Med. And, and so then I'd go down in the basement of like, I'm going to set 14 sleeves tonight. And so you, you do it and I can still make one of those shirts without instructions. Wow. I, I clothed the entire um, team, the Capitals, the Columbus Capitals, they had blue plaid uniforms and those, I made them all. So, and they're not, <clears throat> pardon me, those, the uniforms aren't light, are they? I mean, the fabric well, is not. These were cotton, cool. like, that, like okay. they were cotton, and some of the some of them are wool. But honestly, wool breathes better than polyester. Yeah. So okay. you know, you it's it's really not that bad. Now the guys that on the muffins, they wore like um, work pants, like you could get Dickies pants, mm -hmm. and then a shirt that was a cotton shirt, and it was blousey, and it had um, buttons in the front, and then you buttoned the shield, which had your team logo on the front of it. And oh, wow. our logos were, you know, a red, a red M on a white field, but then you flip it over and it was solid red. So if you had to play like a, a club match, then half the guys could be red and half could be white. So when they do it, and this is terrible, I've been to the Ohio History Connection now, and I think I went, we probably did a field trip in school at some oh, point. I did many, many. Did you? Oh, yeah. How did I miss? Ben and I went to the same school growing up yeah. i apparently missed out we went to the same high school but before then you were different middle school than they i think it was a middle school thing and um, an elementary school thing mm -hmm. i, I didn't apparently i didn't go to the good school yeah. spend oh, well, did but have yeah. the fun field trips i yeah. we didn't yeah. apparently mm, toss toss then but yes. like the we took our kids not too long ago when did the muffins team start playing? I mean, this is a team. Do they play against each other? So is it set up like a scrimmage within the same people or do they have other museums well, or groups that sure. do this? Well, let me tell you, um, the muffins, <laughs> um, they started, I think it was in 1981 and okay. they were funded by the Ohio History Connection and they were meant to be interpretive and within the Ohio village. And it was fun to play club matches for a while, you know, play scrimmages against one another, but mm -hmm. they started forming other teams, other communities and other historical centers got interested. And so now there are literally hundreds of teams all over the country. Oh, how cool. And this And the Ohio Village Muffins were one of the first. Yeah. Um, and so every Labor Day weekend, they have the Ohio Cup where they have teams come in and they play a big tournament. And so on the, the Friday, Saturday and Sunday of, uh, of Labor Day weekend, you can go out and watch them play. And it oh, was super fun. We, we really enjoyed that. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And it's, these are the things that I'm sad. There's so much that I've experienced maybe in the last six years that I never did before, mm-hmm. which makes me really embarrassed to have lived in Columbus all this time. And not oh, have experienced. There's so much going on here. You, you could go yeah. your whole life and not see a lot of the things that are happening here. That's for Absolutely. sure. Were you born in Ohio then? Yes. Born in Cincinnati. Okay. Okay. Went, went to Princeton High School, Ohio University. And then my husband is a professor. And when he got a job at Capitol, we ended up here. And he uh, taught at Cap for 12 years. Mm-hmm. What did he teach there? Economics. At Capitol. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then you started, because you were also a dancer, choreographer. Yes. Did you, mm-hmm. did you do that all growing up as well? Well, yeah, I always took dance lessons and I was on like the high school drill team and in musicals and things like that. And I didn't really intend it to be a career. But then after he graduated from grad school and we landed first in Portsmouth, Ohio, my job opportunities were limited. And I was just looking for something to do part time. And I ended up teaching at a dance studio. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I really love this. This would be something I'd love to keep doing. And so by the time we moved up to Columbus, I was dead set on staying with it. And so um, I had owned a studio down in Portsmouth because it was really easy to give something new to the community because there wasn't a whole lot going on down there. So I had opened a studio and worked for a couple of years. And then up here, um, I hooked on with the uh, Parks and Rec system first and I taught at Bexley Rec and I taught in Columbus at Park of Roses and down in Schiller Park for a while, Uh and you know, baby dance classes. And then I got in Vaudevillities, Uh um, the show, and I met a couple of teachers that way and I started taking classes at Ballet Met and then I started subbing. And then when their tap teacher quit, they hired me. So it was kind of like the rest was history. And I ended up running the tap program there for years and years. And I, I had a great, wonderful career there. Enjoyed it so much. What a program. I, it, I'm astonished at how Ballet Met has thrived and changed. And yet they still, every year, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it, even, even during this COVID time, seeing what they've been doing has just been outstanding. Yeah everybody's had to reach down deep into their creativity and those are some of the most creative people I know so and they're innovators and they're you know just very driven and they'll bring the arts to you any way they can until we can get back to normal so absolutely was tap always your do I say medium is Um, medium always my favorite yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and so that's why it's great that I can actually um share that with the kids at Bexley this year because we're doing something rotten which has a lot of tap in it and I've got a couple of kids the very last little one I taught at um Bexley at Ballet Met is Jillian Savage and you know Jillian. she's my kiddo yes yeah, and she's a sophomore this year and she was like seven when when we moved to Texas and so now she's all grown up and and she's um in my cast and I just love having a couple of kids who you know the couple other ones have taken some tap and so I've got some that know what's going on and and the rest of them are really working hard and they're doing a great job and I just I'm so proud of oh that's so accomplishing. cool but I think they're so thankful to have something to do because we are doing live theater and well, we're streaming and we're having a limited size audience at Bexley and, and not everybody's doing that this year. So they know how lucky they are. It, it's that. true. I, I actually, uh, our, our neighbor, we're not in Bexley, but our neighbor comes on the weekends to stay with his dad and he's in Bexley mm-hmm. at the, LM, or excuse me, at the middle school. And they just did um, Adam's Adam family. family. Yep. And it was, he was, there's something to me that I am honestly so sick and tired of doing everything online. Sick of it. Mm-hmm. Been teaching online for a year now. Not fun. Done. Over it. I love, I love it when I'm there, but the rest of the time is like, I'm so over this. I'm done. Podcasting online is okay, but yeah. I, I, can't yeah. I was just, yeah, I was just reading about the Zoom exhaustion because, you know, they said when you're in a regular meeting, you aren't constantly staring at the speaker. Mm-hmm. You might be picking notes, you might be, you know, having a side conversation with somebody else. But when you're in this particular setting, it feels rude not to stare at you all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And well, so and just the way that we've had to figure out connection pieces, mm-hmm. you know, and, and where do I look? How do I look? My eyes, I, every time I'm done teaching, it's like I look like a drug addict by the time I'm done <laughs> teaching because my eyes are just bloodshot every single time. Yes, it's exhausting. And well, have you tried to teach dance to people that no, are I don't. little screens? Okay, Tracy, yeah, this doesn't dance. If this can help it, this does not dance. Okay, I'm well, not a triple you. threat. With, with um, I'm pretty much a single threat myself. But you know, <laughs> with um, can with, we just borrow each other? <laughs> no, 
you know, kind of share and we'd, we'd be, yeah. we'd have it all. Um, yeah, the kids had to theater. learn their choreography from home via Zoom because we were not uh -huh. doing rehearsals in person at that point. So I had 22 little postage stamps of children on my screen and I was way back across the room so they could see my feet. And I was like, five, six, seven, eight. And then they're streaming it all comes through at different speeds. And so some of them start and some of them are two beats behind. And I was like, whoa, looks great. You know, because what else do you say? This looks and like I, garbage, guys. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about this. And you know, after yeah. the first time I had, you had to lie down with a glass of wine and a cold cloth on your head. You're like, I don't know if I can do this. I probably would have lied down during the class. <laughs> Let's oh pretend God. this is normal. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's the whole thing is pretending it was normal. But you know what? You, you double down and do it for the kids because yeah. they deserve something to look forward to. Yeah. And it got easier. And then by the time I came up for dress rehearsal and we were allowed to practice in person, darned if they hadn't learned it all by watching the videos. Yeah. yeah. Because now they've got videos they can refer to and they can practice on their own time. And they all took the initiative. And this is sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. This is yep. not even the high school crew. This is the middle school kids. And so mm -hmm. they rocked it. They did a super job. So was this for Adam's family that you did it yes. for? Yes. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Thurston mm -hmm. is my neighbor kiddo. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. It's uh, the first time we we met and started geeking out together about musical theater. I'm like, this kid rocks. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he did a tremendous job. He was a great Pugsley. So I fun. think though too, I mean, wouldn't you say like there's to some degree, there's a weird benefit to having these kids home now because these are the kids that learn things through video anyway, with all right. of the TikTok. I mean, I think that had this happened to us when, when we were younger. Oh, we would just all be really, really behind. And yeah. And and backward and and not yeah. socialized and everything but yes at least you can still stay in some kind of contact you know that's what it made me think about that a lot while i was working on the finalizing of this book that's set yeah. during the american revolution and like the isolation that we suffered was nothing compared to what they might have suffered in the 1700s you know where you're yeah. thinking it's, it's weird to be stuck by yourself, but you know you can at least communicate with somebody. But what if you were waiting for a letter for your husband for, from your mm -hmm. husband for months and you're just wondering, is he dead or alive? You just don't know. And we've never had it that rough. No. And there were so many parallels to what was going on in, in the book world and then going on in our world that I felt like, wow, it's the more things change, the more they really stay the same. It's just mm -hmm. that you know, the medium's a little different. Yeah. I mean, we laugh at how could we have survived this whole time had we not had media and had we not had i i would pause it no to be honest with you <laughs> i i really genuinely think that the internet of the world yeah. saved us this, mm -hmm. i really think so i can't yeah, imagine I think so too. Yeah. um our skills are just so different now oh yeah the things that we don't have to survive 200 250 years ago they're just not even on our on our radar they, they're nothing we've yeah. ever learned how to do and right. uh, yeah yeah what's funny too is though how many what we may refer to as like old-fashioned skills though did make a comeback how everybody yeah. baked bread yeah mm -hmm. everybody learned how to cook like immediately yeah. and, and and sewing and yeah. Yeah, yeah like all these new things that, now i I, got, I can't lie. I didn't really do anything new. <laughs> I was just depressed for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I, think, I think I started. I think we all I had a, we all yeah. I think I started going through the photos in the basement. Um, and if I look at the box of photos in the basement, they're just in a different order at mm -hmm. this point. I didn't organize them. Yeah. I looked through them. Just shuffle. And then I just put them back. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that was on everybody's to-do list. I think organize the family photos was on everybody's to-do list. Yeah. It was on ours. And yeah. I got them into the the boxes, like the shoebox size boxes you buy at the craft store by like decade. And oh. then I considered that a, a win. That's and great. Then I, I put it away because it was like, I just, I can't even anymore. And there were yeah. more exciting yeah. things to do. So yeah, I, I was texting my sister during the process and looking back on it, how many horrible pictures of us were taken? Mm -hmm. Like, why did anybody in their right mind find it okay to take mm -hmm. pictures of us <laughs> in middle school in our swimsuits? No, 
awful. <laughs> so she's like, you know, and I text her, she goes, if you show this to anybody, I will come and murder you. No COVID. <laughs> like <laughs> with the time to like clean out those photos and get rid of. And, and so that makes you wonder too, when you look through the photos, I've become the repository for all the old family photos from like yeah. the 1920s and, wow. and even farther back. And some of them are the ones where they have to sit really, really still and not smile because it takes five minutes to expose the film. And if you smile, you're more likely to shift and then be blurry. And you just wonder when you get some of these pictures and you're like, oh yeah, that looks just like you. And, and yeah. you, if you, if you said that to somebody, would they cry? Because they, you know, they just, <laughs> hairstyles are different and clothing styles are different. And it's like, was that attractive? I'm not really sure, you know, and it's just, wow, we, so. I actually never thought about that. That's the reason why in old photos, mm -hmm. nobody smiles. Well, they they oh, yeah. had like a neck frame, yeah. but they, they sat you yeah. in a frame oh, yeah. so that you didn't move. Yeah, and that's why everybody looks so like stiff and posed. Like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they took like minutes to expose, even yeah. in like really bright light. It was crazy. I would yeah. not handle that well. Yeah. Well, that's why people only had two or three pictures of themselves. It was an event. Yeah, you'd get everybody dressed mm -hmm. up. You'd go in. You'd stand there perfectly still. For, imagine trying to do that with kids. That's why you don't see many pictures of kids mm -hmm. from that era. You know, true. Yeah, I wouldn't do that to mine now. Yeah, my, my daughter would be a blur yeah. across the bottom. <laughs> be like the yeah. the panoramic view. That's <laughs> <laughs> chasing her. Around. Yeah. Tracy, were you always interested then in things of the past? I mean, was when did this fascination with history and revolutionary times start? Well, that started um, when I first got moved um, to Florida from my husband's grad school, I got interested in genealogy. And so then at that time, it was like grandma sending me files and pictures and things like that. And I, I did my research and got my membership to the DAR when I was down there. Oh, so wow. I was okay. in my 20s. Yeah, so I'm a 30 year member of the DAR now and I'm nice. not but yeah, I still bring down the average when I come to a meeting at the average age. So, um, <laughs> and I love, I love hanging out with the DAR ladies. They do so much good for the community and they're such wonderful spirits. And, um, but so I got interested in that kind of thing. So I became the repository for all the family stories, but I never heard the story of Anna Asbury Stone until 2013 when I was compiling a bunch of, fa of family stories into a genealogy book for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. And I was kind of doing a, who do you think you are? Because that's my mom's <laughs> favorite show where they do the genealogy on celebrities. Yeah. And so I was compiling all the family stories and I came across this story of a woman who, while her husband and brothers were at Valley Forge, had heard of the privations there and heard that people were starving and she couldn't not go. So she packed oh, what wow. she could carry on horseback and she rode 200 miles from Virginia to Valley Forge to bring supplies to her husband and her brothers there. Now, along the way, of course, this was about a week long journey. Yeah. And so she went with, you know, just on the main road and she got to York, Pennsylvania, which is where the Continental Congress was wintering after they'd been, they fled Philadelphia because the British occupied that city. And when she stopped there for the night, she was asked by a congressman to act as a courier and bring a message directly to the general on his behalf because he said it's warning him of a conspiracy against him. Oh my gosh. So the next day she set off with the message and if she wasn't gone long before a man rode up beside her, blocked her way and said, Mr. Harrison wants that message back. And she said, oh, I don't think so. And she whipped the horse and she took off and now- Good for her. I know, strong woman. It was yeah. so much fun to write her. I knew who she was right from the beginning. And it was yeah. so much fun to imagine her in all these situations. But but think about this. You're a few miles outside York you, and you and I are probably thinking, oh, that's not that far to Valley Forge. It was 80 miles. Ugh. That's two days of riding. Right. So she couldn't just outrun. So when I was writing the scene, you know, I imagine because there was some dialogue in the family story that had been handed down, you know, the, I don't know who you are, sir, I am not going to give this letter to you, whip the horse, off you go. And then as I'm writing it, she looks back and he's following, but he's not, he's in no hurry. Yeah. It's like that zombie that comes after you as slow because it, it's going to catch you eventually. He knows yeah. where she's going. He knows right. she's going to have to stop eventually, or her horse is going to get tired. Or she's going to have to eat or whatever. It's going to get too dark to ride. He's going to catch her eventually. And so that was the fun part of the writing yeah. is imagine how in the world would this woman contrive to outwit a strange man who was chasing her as she's traveling alone for two whole days. And what would she do? And so in the back, you know, in the farther forward in the manuscript, I had to 
show her as someone who maybe had some skills but wasn't up to this task. But the things that she experienced early in her trip gave her the skills mm-hmm. that she then all of a sudden she was ready and she could put those skills into practice because she was not um, she was not a shrinking violet. She was definitely a strong and courageous woman, but she might not have ever tried to evade or hide or, you know, che- like, I don't want to say cheat, but like trick somebody before. Yeah. How well, especially, I mean, the social norms of women, I right. mean, even what she did initially just to even go, that was kind of unheard of, wasn't it? Absolutely unheard of. And that was one of the really cool things about this book was I had to answer two questions before I could write the story was why would she do such a thing? And what was in that letter? Those oh. were the two things I set off to know and know yeah. very well. So I dug into some research and I went back to the genealogy and I, I was looking for background on her to learn more about her. And what I learned was that her father died when she was nine. Mm. Okay. Now that, that sets you up for a hard life when because yeah. you know, at that time you really required a household that had parents mm-hmm. that could take on the different responsibilities. And so when you lose a parent, of course, you know, the other parent usually remarries very quickly. Um, in her particular case, her mother did not remarry. And what I learned was that orphans and widows, okay, you're considered an orphan if your dad's dead, regardless of whether your mom's alive, were taken to orphan's court and a guardian was appointed to oversee the children's educations, their inheritances, in the case of the girls, their dowries, if they were not well off enough that they would not become a public charge, like they would have to go on welfare, then the children could be bound out in indentures or apprenticeships without the mother's consent. Oh my God. Okay, and because the mom couldn't get a job, she -hmm. couldn't go to court, she probably couldn't even run her farm herself. So unless her sons were old enough. And in this case- just because she was a woman. Right, just because she was a woman. So okay. I've got Anna is set up for some serious battles here, right? So I don't know exactly what happened to my real grandmother, but in the novel, the character Anna gets taken and put into an indenture to pay down a debt that her father left unpaid when he died. And so indentured for seven years from 10 to 17 in a household where she works as a maid. And then if she satisfies, she's free to go when she's 17 and she gets you know, severance pay, she gets like a new set of clothes and um, some money and some pots and pans so that she has a dowry to start off her life as someone's wife. And so if you think about a girl that was raised like that, where she was maybe cared for, and and in her case, she works in the kitchen and she finds a mentor and a mother figure in one of the enslaved women there and becomes Mm. extremely close to her. So when she goes back home and her family situation has changed drastically, her mother has moved in with her uncle and aunt and the youngest brother is sent off to university and he becomes the uncle's heir. And she's like the poor relation. She comes home at 17 and she's like, my brother doesn't remember me. My older brothers are gone to wherever they went, were sent. And, you know, and I don't have a social circle of friends I can enter into. I don't know who I am. And, and then she wonders why her mother refused. You know, she doesn't accept her mother's authority and her mother doesn't understand why. But this was the character that I built so that you would be that kind of a woman who would say, when you tell me no, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And that was the kind of character I wanted to build. Now, it was more challenging to figure out my great grandfather because Mm. she married a Baptist preacher. And so I think, okay, I've got this strong and wild and wonderful woman. And she marries what I imagined to be a staid Baptist preacher. Well, how boring is that? Maybe he wasn't all that exciting. Maybe he was steady and dependable. No, when I dug into this guy, I found out that he was really rebellious and he was on the forefront of a movement that ended up forming the first amendment in our freedom of religion. Oh, wow. From way before the revolution started. Yeah. Because, in, you know, we think of people came to America for freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things we learn in school, but what they don't tell you is that in certain states, the religious toleration did not extend beyond whatever religion was chosen. And in in Virginia, it was the Anglicans, it was the Church of England. So any Baptist was like, oh, the Baptists were just like the, the thorn in the side of the Anglicans. Now see the Anglicans, they collected tithes like taxes. You had to pay your tithe to the church as a tax, regardless of whether you attended church or not. And so the dissenting, they were called dissenters. The Baptists didn't want to pay that tax. They said that was taxation without representation. 
and the Anglican gentry. And a lot of times the priests were not even the most pious people. They were the people who were well-connected and could afford to go to university. They're, they're appointed and they live very well because the people in their community farm the land and then give them, you know, they yeah. farm the glebe lands, which are given yeah. to the priest. So he, they live very well. Now, my, my, my Baptist six times great grandfather um, served two or three churches in the country where a really good annual tithe might be a quarter. Huh. So he did not make a big income from this, but he was very, very into it. And his church um, that I talk about in the, in the novel was involved in a lot of upheaval and problems. And um, they were part of a revolt in 1769 against paying taxes. And his mentor, um, Elijah Craig, was jailed about uh, half a dozen times for preaching schismatic doctrines and disturbing the peace. <laughs> and so, wow. it, you know, they, these guys were beat up. Their churches were trashed. They were, um, you know, put in jail, all these things simply because they wanted to, pre to worship in their own way. And so they signed a petition in 1776, and I found my grandfather's name on the petition wow. that was put before the General Assembly of Virginia that said, you got to quit persecuting us for our religious beliefs. And mm -hmm. it was a strategic move. It was well-timed because at that time, the governor of Virginia says, we need to raise troops to fight the British because yeah. the war is on. And they sent out that call, not just to the Anglican priests, but all the other dissenting ministers as well. And the Baptists came back with, we'll help you fill those quotas, but when this is over, we want religious freedom. Okay. And so that was what my grandfather was involved in before the war started. And so mm -hmm. a lot of the Baptist ministers enlisted along with the members of their congregation and fought beside them. Wow. So these are the folks, this is my power couple, six times great grandparents that I got yeah. to write this book about. And it was so cool. Which is okay, amazing. So I, I mean, I'm, we just don't have the family history or else we have not looked into it so much. And I know for at least my mom's side, I believe my granddad's family came over from Germany in really mm -hmm. bad timing. So we, he just doesn't know. Hmm. They didn't well, talk about it. Yeah. Um, so we just find more than you think. I mean, you, how do you, you do that? I mean, and this is, I can barely send an email half the time, Tracy. Mm -hmm. So like, how does one go into the genealogy to start? Like you just okay, start, yeah. where do you start? The beginning would be the clearinghouse that is ancestry.com. Okay. Ancestry.com. You can, you know, get a month to month membership. It's very reasonable. Um, they have all kinds of census records, um, ships passage records. They've got city low, digitized books. I mean, just pretty much anything. So what you do is you just go in and put in the name of an ancestors, like maybe the farthest back ancestor you know that you know their birth and death dates, like a grandparent. Yeah. And put that in and do a search. And it will pull up people with that name in those parameters, that city. And then you can start from there and then if there are more things to be learned about that person, there'll be a little leaf, like a family tree leaf. And you click yeah. on the leaf and it tells you, here's their World War I draft card. Here's their marriage license. Here's their census records from 1890. Here's, you know, it can be anything. And people who have documents can upload them and attach them to people. So you can find a wealth of information. And this is how I found that story in the first place. Wow. So it's almost like, uncovering a mystery piece by piece and oh I mean absolutely didn't you always want to be Nancy Drew when you were little I mean honestly mm -hmm. it's well, I wanted I, to I be Mary Lou Retton but <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so we definitely could like we could share skills and we would have just about everything well covered. I wasn't good at gymnastics but I just wanted to be her oh, so um so. but I'm a child of the 80s so that would be <laughs> yeah so, I think that's really all there yeah, was history.com will get you started and then from there um google has a lot of digitized books, Google Play. Okay. And that one of the, a couple of the books that I used for research, one of them was a book from 1823 called The Duties of a Lady's Maid. Ugh. And you want, to talk about, you want to talk about crushing the spirit out of a young girl, you know, you may live there, but you are not as good as they are, you know, do not speak until spoken to. And, and it was, it, I used a lot of it for how Anna's mother might have told her, this is what you're going to have to do when you go into service. And then also, um, what her mistress would have expected of her. Wow. So there's ways to get the color. And there was, oh, there were a lot of books about York, Pennsylvania, especially because that's their claim to fame that the Continental Congress was in York in 1777, 78. Yeah. 
And that was when this conspiracy started against General Washington. And I wasn't, I had no idea what was in that note that Anna was asked to carry, but I was able to find out at least the gist of it, which was yeah. like so cool. Okay, so you think there's a conspiracy against General Washington. And I thought, really? Because yeah. didn't everybody love General Washington? Well, it turns out, no, he was mm -hmm. maybe had about a 33 to 40% popularity rate at any given time. Wow. And the war itself, you know, and now that was among the troops. Okay, mm -hmm. the, the troops loved him. Mm -hmm. But among members of Congress and maybe the merchants of Philadelphia who were really eager for the war to be over so that they could resume international, you know, international trade with England, yeah. things like that. There were a lot of people who were like, you know, he goes out there and he loses because he did. Mm -hmm. And, but he also had an overall strategic plan that maybe nobody else could have pulled off. But yeah. in, especially in the fall of 1777, you know, after the victory at Trenton and in the battle of Saratoga, you know, we were riding high, but then 77, things got bad with Brandywine and Germantown, two big defeats within a month of each other. And then you go into winter camp and your supply chains are interrupted and people are cold and hungry and you really don't know, this is kind of the darkest hour of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, this was a great time to try and get rid of the guy. <laughs> and a lot of the supply chain interruptions were not accidents. Okay. Because we know from COVID that supply chain interruptions can really screw with you. Mm -hmm. And if all of a sudden, if your quartermaster all of a sudden walked off the job and left hundreds of barrels of flour rotting on the side of the riverbank and cloth and other things that were needed for the army just never showed up, that was a way to hasten the end of the war. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that was going wrong at the time. And it was not an accident. That's amazing. No. I know. I mean, this, is, this is stuff you just don't hear. And they yeah. didn't sing in Hamilton, I will tell you. Right. That and the, see, if, if, if they had told me these stories in history class, I would have never forgotten them. But so, no. and all the founding fathers, you think, oh, Congress, they agreed. They wanted independence from England. Well, they did, but they wanted it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so you had a faction over here and you had a faction over there and you had the rumblings of the gosh, we're really sick of Washington. We'd really like to get rid of him. We don't think he's doing it right. How about, hey, let's get the guy who won at Saratoga. Okay, the guy who won at Saratoga, Horatio Gates, actually sat in the back and let his other generals do the work. But he took all the, he took all the glory. Oh, politicians so, don't do that. I don't know. Oh, I know. I know. It's so <laughs> funny. It's so funny how much, the more you read, you're like, oh, it sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. So Gates is resting on his laurels and he's been appointed to the Board of War, which is supposed to help Washington. But the Board of War starts to become more of a bureaucratic, um, you know, way to criticize and way to have, make problems for him. And they actually do like, um, what do they call it? Like power creep where he, they were supposed to help and advise, but instead they start saying, well, we're gonna to need to have people report to us instead of to you, commander in chief. I guess there's a, there's a post higher than commander in chief. There wasn't supposed to be, but they were trying to usurp power. And so they were starting to send snarky messages back and forth. And, and eventually they got, a, they got the idea that if they got the vote in Congress, they could send the board of war over to Valley Forge and have Washington removed. Hmm. This is amazing. Isn't this amazing? Well, be, and so, and it, it's so amazing how they they paint this different story. Mm -hmm. Yep, and uh, you would be shocked if I told you some of the names of some of the founding fathers that were in the in the conspiracy in the cabal. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Huh. So you got to read the book to find out. But anyway, Benjamin we'll Harrison. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Harrison. Um, we have a Harrison County in Ohio. I think almost every state has a Probably. Harrison County. Yeah. But yeah, so they were, you know, they were a, a political family and he had been in the House of Burgesses with Washington in the early 70s and he was a good friend of his and of Virginian. And he was rooming with four or five of the men who were Washington's biggest detractors. Hmm. And so hmm. that he would overhear something that was going yeah. down is not, um, is, is very logical. And when I found that he was rooming with those, four, with those other men, I was like, well, of course he was the one who had to find somebody to take a message. And I imagine at some point too, that the people that were involved in the cabal were probably saying, we're gonna stop and search the messengers just in case somebody else tries to get a message to Washington first, because you know, he, if he was properly warned, he could fight it off. But then you also wonder what would happen if 
they did show up and they did take take Washington out of power and they put Gates in. And what if the army didn't want that? And what if they mutinied? Yeah. And what if the British knew about it ahead of time? Now see, think how think how badly this could have gone wrong. Yeah. And all this is going through Anna's mind as she's riding with this message going, I have got to get there because, and on top of everything else, if my husband and all three of my brothers die, I won't have a man to advocate for me and they're going to take my children away. Jeez, so this is, this is the story. And so it was, it was so compelling and it was so fun. But of course, to convey all that information in this woman's journey, I had to do a lot of flashbacks so that you would understand yeah. What was going on? And I think the mental gymnastics. I was not a mental Mary Lou Retton when I started, but I am now. <laughs> Goodness gracious. The, um, you know, because you write it and then you're like, man, these flashbacks are hard. It's really hard to get it right. And so I wrote it in order. Mm. And then it was just a biography and it lost all the tension, right? So then you're like, yeah. okay, I got to figure out how to make it exciting. So you do a present, past, present. So it starts off with Anna just a about 10 miles from Valley Forge. And the emergency is getting hot because the guy's closing in and she's almost there, but she's tired. And then something else happens. And, and so you, know, you get right down to the wire and then you cut back to two weeks earlier oh. when she first learns of the problem. But then you've also got to dip back into her childhood and you've got to maybe show her courtship and her early married days to her husband so that you'll understand why she loves him so much and what makes her, her devotion so fierce that she's willing to ride 200 miles through the winter Unfree, you know, roads. She has no idea where she's going to go save him. And do you, when you're writing this, do you see it? Oh um, yeah, movie like in your head. And yeah. I hear them. They talk to me. Yeah, their their voices huh. are clear. Um, even like down to the, the expressions that they use. Sometimes a character will say something, and I don't even know who it is yet. And it's a great line, and I write that down. <laughs> um, I usually just sit and let them start to talk. And then I write down what they say. Wow. It, it's, it's a really neat, it's a really neat, um, like a Zen kind of a state. And it's when you can be quiet and just sit for a minute and think about what's happening in the story. And then somebody will say something and you'll just be like, that's awesome. And sometimes they'll say it two or three different ways, just so that I have a chance to, you know, edit later. Huh. That's we've we've had a couple of authors on here, and it's always my my interesting and music writers too. Like, how do you do your writing process? I mean, do you sit down? Do you have a time of day where it's like from this time to this time I'm going to sit down and write, or is it just like when the spirit fills you kind of thing? Like, how is your oh, process totally for that? When the spirit, yeah, my process in this, I always had to have a tab open for Google because you have to always. You know, you're writing and you're like, wait, would they have used that expression? I don't know. And you'd have to, you know, dip over real quick and say, first use of the word ninny. And and then, oh, okay, good. That's old enough. I, and so <laughs> you don't want to have them using expressions that didn't exist at the time or whatever. So you've always got a tab open, but I like to compose on legal pads and then let it sit for a day or two, come back to it. And then as you transpose it into the computer, it starts to take on the life of a scene. Um, I don't necessarily even write in order. And this book changed orders so many times that, you know, I literally had pages in stacks on the dining room table and I was moving the stacks around and just kind of, well, if I put that chapter here, no, that won't work. And it, it took like two or three different editors. And the last editor that I had finally gave me a rule. And she said, you can't use a flashback unless it relates to what's happening to Anna in the main story. Okay. And I was like, oh, makes no. sense. so, but then, then you have an awful lot of gazintas which I call in tap dancing is the transition between one step and the next step is how you, how this goes into that. So I had a lot of Gazinta writing um, to, to connect the flashbacks yeah. and everything. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience. Wow. Is it hard to work with an editor? And I, I speak from a very minimal writing perspective in that mm -hmm. I wrote one short play and then had people read it and got wonderful feedback on where I should go with it. And I haven't touched it since. So clearly that's my calling, but um, it can be it, scary. Um, yeah. You have to find an editor that gets you and that you can work with. And I have an editor that I love dearly and she's um, edited five of my books now. Mm. And I really appreciate her. She, um, she'll correct your grammar and then give you a compliment basically in the same sentence, you know? And, and so, but, but she really, she wants to elevate the work mm. and it's, um, but then, gosh, what was, yeah, the first editor just got me through the nuts and bolts. And yes, it's clear and concise. 
no, you didn't use that word too many times. She checks for things like expressions, like, yeah. did how many people raise their eyebrows in surprise in, in this manuscript? And, and you need to cut that down to five total. You know, it was, it was 36, Tracy. You need to Put cut your eyebrows down. down. <laughs> you know, find another way to explain it. And then, then you go to the next editor and the next editor was for historical content. So she read it and she told me anachronisms. She said, how was a colonial woman to think what would she, you know, because if you think like a modern woman, but you just plop you into the colonial era, you're not going to come across as true. You have right. to be of that time. And so I read a lot of contemporary stuff so that I could be of that time. And so I got through her and then I went to the next editor and they're like, you know, this is all in the wrong order. Dang it. <laughs> so, then, so then you take, you cut it all apart. But the, the final editor was the one who was the, um, was the, what do they call it? It was a content edit. It wasn't um, yeah. a line edit. And the line edits where they correct your spelling and your grammar and whatnot, but this was more for the flow of the story. Mm -hmm. So I got, I had a lot of help on this one. And then when it finally got to the publisher, he went through it one more time, but he basically was taking out um, commas and that's. Yeah. I, you know, how that commercial, the Geico commercial where they have a rat problem. Yes. I have a, yeah. I have a that problem apparently. So. <laughs> So we got the vats out of there and everything's good. And uh, and then it just goes to typesetting and then you proofread it one more time to try and catch the last typos. But it's that's a long process. And you get to the point where you've read it so many times, you can't remember if you read the scene that's that over there because mm -hmm. you read them out of order or because it was the last time you read it. Oh my gosh. You know, and so, and what order is this thing in? I don't remember, you know, because you, you, read, you read it and then you start and you stop. Yeah. And I think when I edit, I almost have to go straight through, start in the morning and get as far as I can and then not read anything else until I come back to it the next day. Um, but it's, wow. But now that it's out, I still will pick it up and read a chapter. Um, you know, I particularly, I have a couple chapters that are my favorites that I'll still just pick up and read just cause. And oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And I like to visit them. Now that I don't see them all the time, I like to visit them. That's true. They're not, they're not living with you constantly. No, they're not living with me anymore, but it was fun to work on even familial relationships. You know, like um, my, my preacher husband and his older brother were like a year apart and you imagined them like they probably beat each other up every day of their entire lives when they were kids. And I wanted that, that to show even when they were adults mm. and it was fun to create two very different personalities in the two brothers. And then how they but how they both fiercely loved each other and their families and their wives and how the whole family dynamic worked together oh how cool so when start to finish i mean how long did it take like from the first legal pad oh, to the publishing about three years Oof. okay yeah now i know people who did it faster and i also know people who took a lot longer so but this was from yeah the very first day when i had the idea and then the next day i called the regent of the Anna Asbury Stone chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, because there is a chapter named after my grandmother nice. in Cambridge, Ohio. And I switched okay. my membership. So I'm now a member of that chapter too. Which oh, is there so you go. <laughs> you got to. And so I got the information they had. And then I started my Google search and, you know, family genealogy and stuff like that. But it was, yeah. there was a steep, there's a steep learning curve about what it's like to live in the 1770s. And so I had to know what food they would have had, what kind, what kind of clothing did they wear, you know, just everything about their lives. And one of the last place I spoke, one of the people asked me, well, Anna dresses in her husband's clothes part of the time mm -hmm. for security purposes, right? Because it's too hard to be a woman on the road by yourself. Yeah. And yeah. so when she's wearing her husband's clothes, the woman said, well, I was wondering, did she ride a side saddle? And I said, that is a great question. A great I question. wrestled with that at the beginning because I thought, oh gosh, what if she's got a side saddle and then she changes into her husband's clothes? How do you, how do you explain that one? But the mm -hmm. thing was, saddles were very expensive. And so only the richest women had side saddles and women of modest means would just ride astride. Okay. And so when I found documentation that proved that, I was like, okay, great. So I can send her, I can send her out in a dress. And if she needs to change clothes and dress as a boy for part of the time, then that's okay. Then it won't be. Wow. I, yeah. the minute details. Oh, <laughs> I got to write at least two or three more books set in this time period just to use up what I know. Wow. I feel comfortable there now. And I think it's better to, you know, rather than say, oh, I'm going to write 1820s now. No, no, no. I'm going to stay here for a while. There's Hang a out lot. There. 
there are so many unsung women that contributed to our nation's you know, fight for liberty. Um, just this week, I saw um, in North Carolina, they found, they, they proved that 51 women who had signed a petition saying that they would not buy cloth and they would not buy tea from Britain around the time of the Boston Tea Party. Um, and these women that signed the petition, they've all been recognized by the DAR as patriots. So if you're directly descended from one of them, that can be your ancestor on your insignia, a woman. Oh, wow. And that's 15 huh. women in North Carolina. time. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really awesome. And so they're, yeah, and they're also looking into like women of color, um, Native American women, any, any woman or man who can show that they gave assistance to the cause can mm -hmm. be a patriot. And if you Sweet. can prove it, then you can use that as, as your ancestor. So yeah, it's, it's really a wonderful thing that they're, they're branching out and showing that so many people contributed. And the book I'm working on next is taking place in Charleston during the fall of Charleston in 1780. Wow. And I'm, I'm on to some information about a spy network when the British occupied the town that a spy network operated out of the Charleston market and it was run by women of color. Oh my gosh. Hmm. How cool. I know. When I found out, I was like, yes. And oh, that is so much fun. That's what you're, that is the project that you're working on. Like, I know this is a terrible question to ask, but do you know when? Um, well, I hope it won't be three years. Okay. Now, now, answering Liberty's call just came out a month and a half ago. So, you know, we got to okay. give me a little time, right? So hold up, hold up your, your book again. Oh, we're not on video, are we? Oh, <laughs> see, this is video. how, yeah. this is why Ben does the smart technological stuff <laughs> and Krista's not left up to That's her okay. own. Yeah. I, I'll send you, I'll send you a high res image so you can put it. That'd be great. Yeah. We'll, we'll include uh, that with the. Mm -hmm. For sure. So that's but out yeah, on Amazon, right? On Amazon. Okay. Um, you can your order website. Barnes and Noble from my website. Yeah, you can get it online at Barnes and Noble or it's at the Book Loft in German Village. <gasps> Love the Book Loft. Yes. Love the Book Loft. And then yes. also if you're out in Eastern, um, in the Eastern part of town, um, Newark, Kicks Mix has it as well. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're down on the square in downtown Newark. I do know the square. I can't say I've stopped in it, but I've driven the square because I've gotten going the wrong way in the square. Yeah, they, they were had a lot of construction there recently. Um, yeah, Diana Spain owns that one and she's great. She has this darling little store. So if you're out that way, you can stop in Kicks Mix and you can find my books there too. So I yeah. like that. Tracy, I, this has been so great to talk with you and I'm really excited for, for the next projects. And where can where can folks find you if they want to find more? Obviously we yeah. talked about the books being on Amazon and, and sure. Barnes and Noble and such, but where can they find information on you? information on me. My website is Tracy Lawson Books, and it's Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N. Cool. And it's got, um, the homepage has information about the most recent release, which is Answering Liberty's Call. You can learn about all my books there. Also, if you think you might be a descendant of Benjamin and Anna, and you want to learn more about my research, I've got it published on the, on the website, so you cool. can access it there. Um, and there's buy links there for the books. So That's so yeah. cool. And you've done the hard work for people too. So thanks for that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, other people did the work for me. True. So, you know, I've, I've gotten in on other people's papers too, but if you find that you're descended from somebody and all you can, and you can connect to somebody else who's already in on that ancestor, then it's just a matter of connecting yourself to that, that line. And it's a lot easier right. to learn and do the research if you don't have to do it all from scratch. Absolutely. I think it's that, that from scratch things that scares me sometimes. So. Oh, it's, no, it's fun to dig in. I love the research and I love digging around and finding a mystery. Can I tell you one more story before we- Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Also, my, my grandfather, Benjamin, was an abolitionist in the 1760s before it was cool to be an abolitionist in Virginia. And that's been a family story. And part of um, that is because his grandfather's um, mother died in childbirth giving birth to him. And he was raised by an enslaved nanny. Mm -hmm. And when he grew old enough to understand what it meant for her to be a slave, he vowed that he would never own another person because he loved his nanny. That was the only mother he knew. And so it came down through the family that Benjamin's father didn't own slaves either and neither did Benjamin. And so that's part of his promise to Anna is that it'll be an even, it'll be a partnership. It won't be, yeah. I'm in charge of you. It'll be, you'll be my help meet and my partner in every sense of the word. And there's a family story that in later in their lives, they inherited um, from a, a relative who had died two slaves. Mm -hmm. And that he did not, he was 
old and infirm. And he said, you have to bring them to me and bring the papers so I can sign them and set them free. Mm. And I found record of that in the courthouse while I was researching another book. I was wow. out in West Virginia researching another book and I was in a, a courthouse where the records had not been digitized. And I found the papers where he says, you need to bring those slaves to me so I can manumit them. Oh my gosh. And I was so proud to know that. Yeah. What a great heritage to pass down the line. And and so they they ended up moving to Pennsylvania after West, they were in Hampshire County, West Virginia, which was part of Virginia when they lived there. But then Mm -hmm. they went up to Uniontown, PA, and then into Ohio where they lived in um, Cadiz and they went as far West as Cambridge um, planting churches. But he, he was organizing churches and being a, a, you know, minister on the, on the frontier when he was in his eighties. So I just think what he must have been like, what kind of a ball of energy he must have been when he was in his, in his 20s and 30s, you know, it was really cool. And to live into your 80s was not normal back then anyway. Well, well, well as it was just the averages. So many kids died in childbirth and so many, you know, so many women died in childbirth and so many children died before they reached the age of five. That it kind of drives the averages down. But they said if okay. you made it past the age of like 17 or 18, you could be pretty sure that you were going to live a decent long life. So that's a long time of life to figure out if you're going to be okay or not. Oh, I know. But, but, you know, but again, with childbirth, there was never yeah. any guarantee. And True. so a lot of women did, you know, and a lot yeah. of people fell to accidents and things that, well, that aren't part of our world, like your skirts catching on fire while you're cooking, you know, things like that. They said a lot of women died from things like that. And, and of course, men died in accidents too, felling trees in, in lots and, you yeah. know, things like that, that we don't necessarily have happen to us on mm-hmm. a regular so wow i have a lot to learn about history (laughs) (laughs) well tracy thank you so much it was so great to talk to you and we're we're excited to see what's next well thank you thank you for having me i had a great time thank you thank you and if you like what you hear listen to us on speak easily on soundcloud itunes youtube that's about yeah yeah, you'll find us we're out there we're out there we're we're out there somewhere speak easily yep thank you all right thanks tracy Bye. bye Foxland Media. Think big.